For this season of Raw Material, we're driving across California, looking at art in the landscape. My name is Jessica Placzek, and I'm a reporter. My name is Maddie Gobo, and I'm a fiction writer. Together, we're looking at what art can teach us about life in the West, its past, present, and possible future. This is season three, Landfall, a production of SFMOMA. Today, we're going to be talking about a style of building called vernacular architecture. It's often designed by locals for their own needs and traditions. In central California, those needs and traditions often center on farming. The Central Valley is one of the most productive agricultural regions in the world. But at what cost? Hey, Jessica, do you want to travel through time today? Um, okay, where are we going? Don't you mean when? Point taken. Uh, okay, fine. Where are we, when? When are we going? It's the year 1868. We're crossing California's coastal range on horseback. Our travel guide is John Muir a celebrated naturalist and the father of the U.S. conservation movement. We're coming down from the mountains and entering the San Joaquin Valley for the first time. Shh, John Muir's about to tell us something. The Valley of the San Joaquin is the floweriest piece of world I ever walked on. One vast, level, even flower bed, a sheet of flowers. Wow. Oh my gosh, so beautiful. Inspiring. Today, those flowers are gone. In their place, the fields are covered in dry yellow grasses and crops. To see what that valley is growing, Maddie and I went to a local farmer's market. My step-grandpa Enrico grew tomatoes. And he believed that you needed to abuse tomatoes to get them to taste really good. Like, tomatoes are masochist, is what he said. And so he hired people to go out into the fields and beat the tomato bushes, like, every couple of weeks to just keep them in line. And he grew the best tomatoes. I don't know how I feel about that. (laughs) That's pretty funky. In season right now, summertime, you have all the good stuff. You have the strawberries, the raspberries, goldberries, blackberries. It seems like it would be difficult in extreme heat for them to like stay plump. They're very, talk- very fragile. We have to be very careful with them. So that's why we, when we drive over here, we have the AC on. So it's kind of good that it's, it's in the early. Thank you. Have a nice day. What's the hardest thing you guys grow? Like, what's the most labor intensive? Que lo más difícil? Point. Really? <laughs> what, what goes into growing corn that makes it difficult? Lots of water, a lot of time into it. Right. Yeah. And also, like, I'm sure picking is not yeah, the picking easy. picking is harder. Yeah. Very hard, especially when it's hot. How hot does it get on your farm? If we get 100 degrees, we go inside the corn 120, at least. What? It's hotter than Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why we... Early in the morning. In that the way morning. That's why we do it in the morning. Yeah, tell the tastings and tell and can you tell us a little bit about what it takes to keep these trees cool and alive and producing great stuff? Well, there's a couple ways you keep them cool. You can either uh, water at night 
Uh, and you also, we're growing a little bit differently where we're at, we're bushing them, we're making big bushes. So a lot of the fruit is hidden within some shade. Wait, so I didn't know you had to water at night. Why can't well, you water? you don't have to water at night, but water evaporates. You water in the daytime, it evaporates. So if you water at night, you'll get some penetration two, three feet down, and then it pulls it back up, so it cools it off a little bit. California farmers have been finding creative ways to deal with the heat for decades. But we want to take you to a place where that creativity went above and beyond. Or should I say below and beyond? It's a place where you can see how someone with a big vision can adapt. His name was Baldessare Forestieri. This is probably like the coolest thing in Fresno right now, honestly. You know, nowadays we try to incorporate going green. In that era, he was already using it. It's crazy how one man has done all of this. Like, I, I would never think to do underground. These are the voices of the staff at Forestiere Gardens, an underground maze of rooms and tunnels that once stretched out for acres upon acres. It includes a ballroom, a chapel, fish ponds, bedrooms, and subterranean gardens where trees grow under big round skylights. Baldessare Forestieri was a Sicilian immigrant. Uh, he was born in 1879, and he came to the United States with the dream of growing citrus. This is Shara Roderick. She's a manager at the gardens. Shara's small and energetic with a bright smile, and her magenta top really sticks out against the dirt of the tunnels. He was going around California and he had heard about the San Joaquin Valley, and of course we grow all types of fruit here. In 1905, he bought 70 acres of land, but when he dug into it, he found a thick layer of hardpan. Hardpan is this impervious layer of clay and sand that's difficult to grow plants in. And what did he do when he found this hardpan? Well, uh, the first thing, I'm sure Baldassar probably uh, muttered a few curse words in Italian. <laughs> I'm sure he was very frustrated. At first, he just let it be. He started hiring himself out as a laborer just to make ends meet. Then came his first summer in Fresno. It was over 100 degrees almost every single day, some days getting to 115 degrees, 118 degrees. He was miserable. Baking in the heat, he thought back to his hometown in Sicily, back to the wine cellars, back to the catacombs, to the cool temperatures underground. And so he began digging. Baldessari was good at digging. Before he came to California, he found work digging subway tunnels under Boston. That's how he got the money to buy this land. Baldessare managed to hollow out a little room. He moved his bed down there and began sleeping underground. And from there, he kept digging. The gardens had no blueprint. Baldessare designed as he went. He developed a way to turn hard pan into bricks. He figured out a water recycling system and custom heating and air conditioning. The trees and vines act as insulation. Some rooms can be almost 30 degrees cooler than the surface. Archways and tunnels branch out in all directions for acres. Without a guide, 
you could easily get lost. If visitors wanted to find Baldassare, the easiest way would be to ring the big bell above the chapel. And then Baldassare would appear out of the tunnels. He worked on this home for the next 40 years. Because Baldassare never made a map, we still don't know exactly how big the gardens became. All we know is that in the first 16 years, he dug out about 50 rooms. We still to this day get contacted by people. I had a gentleman from down the street come over here and said that he just bought a piece of land not too far from us and there's a cellar in it that looks just like Baldassar's. <laughs> so I, there's, some of them are still out there. When he wasn't hired out for other work, Baldassare was underground. He was comfortable there, and you can see why. The tunnel ceilings are carved to exactly his height, 5'6", making the underground garden kind of his natural habitat. Yeah, because when I first heard of him, I was like, oh, like a, a true, real mole man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, that's actually what people said for a while. Uh, they did call him the human mole. But being here, it's not dark and scary and dank. And he wasn't alone. He had a bunch of friends and... He did have a few girlfriends over the years. <laughs> Can you tell us about them? All we know is that Rick, his nephew, a few times he came, he would hear high-heeled shoes uh, when he would knock on the doors. <laughs> Rick is still around. Hi, Rick. <laughs> How old is he? He's turning 90 in February. Oh still and watering the plants. He's the midday sun. Almost every single day he is out here watering and just making sure that he's taking care of his uncle's work. Shara tells us Rick loved his uncle, and these gardens are a deep expression of Baldessari's inner life, his character and his passions. As a spiritual man, Baldessari's Roman Catholic identity is reflected in his designs. And not just the chapel, many doorways and windows are grouped in threes and sevens to represent the Holy Trinity and the seven sacraments. As a resourceful man, he reinforced his walls with recycled rebar, wagon wheels, and even springs from a mattress. As a social man, he built ballrooms, guest rooms, and gardens to lounge in. Last but not least, he was a farmer. His underground life helped him fulfill his dream of growing citrus in America. And he grew beautiful fruit. I'm realizing now that I didn't eat lunch and I'm so hungry. <laughs> I have pizza in my backpack. We can eat later. We can eat when we're done. Thanks. Be patient, Jessica. <laughs> we are looking at a lot of beautiful fruit right now. <laughs> so hungry. <laughs> Thankfully, Shara listened to me and brought us to a carob tree in Baldessari's living room. It's not going to taste exactly like chocolate, but it's interesting. You know, it's something different to try. Oh, it's like candy. It's mm -hmm. so good. Only the tops of these underground trees can reach through the skylights. When Baldessari was alive, he would walk around on the surface, bending down here and there to pluck an orange out of the ground. Citrus trees typically have a lifespan of 40 to 50 years of producing good fruit. And we have trees here that are over 100 years old, and they're still producing delicious fruits. This might be because the fruit are more protected from the scorching Fresno sun. 
The architecture is designed for this environment so that the trees and the man who tends to them can live happily inside, protected from the harsh heat above ground. A lot has changed since Baldessare dug his tunnels. He never had an heir, so when he died, most of his land was sold off. Now highways surround the property, and instead of the peaceful sounds of farmlands, you hear the roar of cars in every room. So you gotta wonder, would Baldessari be able to build his gardens today? Probably not. The well he dug in 1906 isn't deep enough to reach the water. You have to have water. (laughs) Uh, But this well, it's actually about 30 feet deep, which it is dry today. You could not get water in Fresno at 30 feet these days. The water line's about 200 feet down in this area. Water has always been contentious here. Corporate farms have been pumping the Central Valley Aquifer dry since the early 1900s. With no laws to protect the groundwater, levels have sunk hundreds of feet since Baldessari's day. And that brings other problems like contaminated drinking water and entire towns sinking into the ground. As crazy as this might sound, California doesn't consider its groundwater a public good, so there's no government agency to monitor it. The first bill limiting groundwater pumping was finally passed in 2014, and farmers are not happy about it. You can see signs of this everywhere. We literally mean signs. You can spot them along Highway 99 and I-5. Stop the Congress-created Dust Bowl. Is growing food a waste of water? Make California great again. Build more dam storage. This problem was created over a century ago, and it's going to take decades to fix. And that's only if we make it a priority. Mother isn't in her burrow. I run the tunnels to the central cavern, where I find her in the tub beside the well. It's her first bath in weeks, so she's taking her time. I'm impatient. I ask, Mother, when will I go down? She wrings filthy water from her sponge. Fat pink grapefruits hang just above her head. Mother says, inspect the lines. Make sure they're flowing. She hands me the hose. I follow it to the surface, looking for leaks. The midwinter sun is blazing, 107 or 108 degrees at least. I sweat but keep to my task. The gardeners won't let me go down until I've checked the pipes. We can't afford to lose a drop. It will take all our kindness and all our patience to raise an orchard in the desert. Mother says... It's that rude son. He makes everything scared to grow. Gardeners are at work, covering the sand with loam. Others build canopies for new saplings. Someday the saplings will bear fruit, but first they need to drink. I imagine I can hear them begging. Hang on, I tell the little plants. I'll be back with that drink. 
Mother is pleased with my work. She takes her speaking horn from its shelf. Her words echo through the tunnels, calling the gardeners in. Today, my daughter will descend the well. Mother laces my harness. I wrap my arms around the bucket, and the eldest gardener helps me onto the lip of the stone well. He threads the rope through its pulley. Mother squeezes my hand, then pushes me in. Once the water was 30 feet below. Now I drop for miles towards the sound of rushing water. I see darkness. The well's mouth becomes a distant moon. The light is its pocked dry surface. Once men stepped on lunar dust. They climbed down from their spaceship and walked until they came back to where they started. Then they planted a flag. The flag never grew and their footprints never blew away. The infernal river courses below. My skin is damp. I taste water as I breathe. When my feet hit the waves, I am nearly swept away. There is this current under everything, under dust and dead trees and empty buildings and scorching sun. There is still this current pulling life along. truly sustainable the earthquake the hurricane the flood because they've always been there and they will always come back the problem is we build the same thing again expecting different results but we have the experience now we know better and the solutions are in nature we live in the midst of environmental ruin both natural and man-made but some people are trying to find a way to work alongside nature and adapt to it. So we take the principle of the arch and the elements, earth, water, air, and fire. And with that knowledge and understanding, you become empowered to recognize that no matter what happens, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what disaster, what economic collapse, no matter what the situation is, you know you can build yourself a shelter a home. That works in harmony with nature. That is sustainable. We're in Hesperia, California at the California Institute of Earth Art and Architecture, or CalEarth for short. It was founded by architect Nader Khalili in 1991. The man you just heard talking is his son, Dastan Khalili. Here in the dry desert, we're surrounded by different types of domed earthen structures. The, the designs like look like either beehives or shells or like termite mounds. It kind of looks like you've landed on Tatooine in Star Wars. Some of the buildings are just big enough for one person to lie down inside, but others are huge, able to fit maybe a hundred people. Look at this! And so breezy. And though it's over 100 degrees outside, all these structures are cool and comfortable inside. This one has a lot more ventilation. We've got like a kind of a honeycomb effect going on on one wall here. They also have great acoustics. Should we sing in here? What are we singing? 
I'll be over at ten, you told me time and again, but you're late. I wait around and then I run to the door, I can't take any more, it's not true. You let me down again. Hey, 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 pretty baby. People come into these structures and they just say, you know, I've never been in an earthen house before, but I just love how it feels. It's familiar, even though you've never been in it. It's very grounded because it's built of the earth that's right from under our feet. This is Shifta Khalili. She's the founder's daughter, and now she's Calert's co-director with her brother Dastan. Our goal is for people to be empowered to build for themselves. Cal Earth claims as long as you can carry a coffee can full of dirt, you have all the skills you need to build a super adobe home. It's a way of building using sandbags, barbed wire, and earth to create strong and beautiful structures that can be built very quickly and easily by people with little to no experience and in a very affordable way. Many people visiting today are here to explore affordable housing options. Unlike government housing, the basic structures here can be personalized to fit different tastes, lifestyles, cultures, and needs. We had a, a group actually recently in South Africa. They built a full community for a children's school and an orphanage. For disaster-stricken areas, they're developing something called the Duffel Bag Dome so that refugees can build their own shelters, allowing them to live with dignity. It's a concept that would allow somebody to take two duffel bags, less than 40 pounds each, which is what's required for a a checked-in bag on an airplane. And inside these two duffel bags is everything that you need to build a six-foot dome. The dome's earthen walls help to retain heat in the cold and stay cool in the heat. The beehive shape means that they can withstand floods and earthquakes. And if there is damage, it's easy to fix. You don't need more materials, you just need fresh dirt. Born in Iran, Nader Khalili loved the poetry of Rumi, a 13th century Persian scholar and mystic. The earth submits to the sky and suffers whatever comes. Tell me, is the earth worse for giving in like that? A lot of the poetry of Rumi informs this architecture. He would always talk about architecture in some ways as tangible poetry. All of these buildings, they're designed with nature, right? We, we, we think about everything. There's no, everything that we've set up, there's a reason for it, right? There's a reason why the window faces in a certain direction. It's typically either artistically related or it's about the way the wind moves across the site. Earth turns to gold in the hands of the wise. I really did get super inspired when they were talking. I was like, yes, I want to do this. I could do this. It's like like a real humanitarian mission that's actually achievable. That's the crazy thing. It's like it's not just a weird pipe dream. But for those of us not yet ready to build our own homes, there are other ways to stay cool. Like swimming in your local creek. Fully swimming, fully submerged. I'm not a weenie at all. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
That's it for this week's episode of Raw Material. I'm Maddie Gobo. And I'm Jessica Placzek. The amazing Ellery Kramer composed all the music in this episode. Thank you, Ellery. And thank you to our voice actor, the fabulous Hannah Kingsley Ma. The farmers you heard at the top were Veronica of Rancho La Familia, Aldo Cuevas and Caesar of Perry's Farms, and Steve of Mount Mariah Farms. From the staff at Forestieria Gardens, you heard D.C., Manuel, and Karina. If you want to see photos of what we've been talking about and where we've been visiting, follow us on Instagram at Raw Material Podcast. This podcast is a production of SF MoMA. We'll be back in two weeks. And if you're looking for other podcasts to tide you over till then, we suggest Inflection Point. It's hosted by Lauren Schiller over at KALW. On it, you'll hear the stories of badass women who take on the world and win. And if you like this podcast, you'll probably like the other show I work on, Bay Curious. It's where me and host Olivia Allen Price answer listener questions about the Bay Area. You'll learn about buried ships, golden poppies, and what happened to all the graveyards that used to be in San Francisco. And lastly, you should head over to the Modern Art Notes podcast, where Tyler Green talks to artists, art historians, and authors. In the most recent episode, you can hear an interview with us, your dear hosts of Raw Material. That's all. Thanks for listening. Bye.